0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. The Apostle Peter teaches Christians to be foreigners in the world and to follow Christ instead of the crowd. And teaching children to avoid following the crowd can be especially tough. Jen Wilkin shares insights regarding how to encourage children to live out this call. We hope and pray this message gives you encouragement and wisdom as you interact with your children. My name is Jen Wilkin, and the reason that I have been invited to speak here this morning is because I am a perfect parent, and I have raised perfect children. So anyone who is in my club, please come find me afterwards, and we'll celebrate our great success. No, the reason that I am here, I'm actually not sure the reason that I'm here, but I do have kids who have made it to young adulthood and I'm clothed and in my right mind. So if you're willing to accept those as my credentials, we will move forward. I am going to talk to you this morning about raising an alien child and I need you to know a little bit about my family so that you can filter properly what I'm going to talk about. In the Wilkin family, we had four children in four years. When I had the first three, by the time I had my third child, I had an oldest child who was two years and four months old. So we just like, when we decided we were having babies, the Lord said, yes, you are. So I think what happened in our house was we needed uh, to crystallize some methods a little quicker than the person who has children a little further apart or has a little bit of a a different situation than we did. So um, just as the saying goes that all uh, theology is autobiography, I would argue that all parenting methods probably are too. And I'm going to talk about some things today and tell you the way that we did things in our family, but your home is not my home. There are six unique individuals that lived under my roof and you have individuals living under your roof as well. And so I would task you in general with any parenting information that you receive to take what you can use and leave the rest behind. I cannot tell you what to do. I can tell you what we did. And I want to to give you some general principles that I think were helpful and that are based on my understanding of God's word. I also need to say that everything I will share with you today is not from me alone. It comes from the Lord, of course, when we go to parent. But my husband, Jeff, is an absolute partner with me in raising these children. And his wisdom is behind many of the better things that you might be able to take away from this because I'm the one who, when a kid goes and does something where you're like, you embarrassed me, why are we related? He's the one who says, calm the heck down. So. We all need someone like that. If you would turn with me to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 and what we're going to be talking about is how we can help our children trade the comfort of fitting in for the calling of standing out. So in the summer of 1982, which was actually 35 years ago this year, I went to see a movie with my brothers and my best friend, Wendy. Wendy was my next-door neighbor, and she was sort of a surrogate sister for me because I did not have any sisters. And I was very self-conscious in middle school, so I was 13, 13 years old and uh, wanted my brothers to, to want me around and also wanted no one to actually look at me any other time. And we lived in a relatively small town. So when you went to go see a movie in the summer, you went to the only theater that there was. And you were probably sitting there with friends and neighbors. Wendy came with me. She sat next to me. The movie was E.T., The Extraterrestrial. About midway through the movie, things turn ugly for E.T. Wendy is overcome with emotion and screams at me in the theater. Does he die? Does he die? Like at the top of her lungs. And I thought to myself, I don't know if he dies, but I sure want to right now. (laughs) E.T., the extraterrestrial, was the fourth largest grossing film of all time because it's an endearing story. I mean, you think about that movie. I hope this is not a spoiler for anyone because for heaven's sake, you've had 35 years to watch it. But I remember the first time that E.T. came on the screen and because they hadn't shown him like in any of the previews, you didn't know what he was going to look like. And you were just so distracted by this sort of partially human appearance that it took a while to stop focusing on the externals to realize that the message the movie was communicating is that E.T., the extraterrestrial, was sort of a better version of us. And it starts to make sense, doesn't it, why that movie would be one of the most high grossing films of all time? because someone comes down to earth, is revealed to his followers to be a better version of humanity. He suffers at the hands of wicked men, he dies. He comes back to life and he ascends home. That's a powerful story. That's a story that can be told again and again, because like all good stories, it's the one true story. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. I learned these verses for the first time about the time that I had seen ET. And so every time I read them, I'm picturing Elliot. And it was a little hard at scripture memory camp to recite this without having sort of a grin on your face. Cause you're like, they said aliens, you know, that movie but it was actually a really good image to carry along. It was a really good idea to hold on to as I pursued my own walk as a believer, but then as a parent as well, it's an important image for us to keep in mind. If I were to ask you, what is your greatest hope for your child? I would get a varying number of answers, but I guess that, I'm guessing that we would mostly all say something similar to this. Our greatest hope for our child is that they would grow to know, love, and serve God with everything they have. That's what we want, right? That's why you came here. That's why you arranged for someone to watch those crazies while you were here and paid money and took a lot of effort to get here. Because we want to be someone who has a child who grows to know, love, and serve God with everything they have. But here's what I think we need to come to terms with. Those who grow to know, love, and serve God with everything they have do not blend in. They will look radically different, which means that the goal of the Christian parent is to prepare a child to live in a world that is not their home. Which begs the question then, how much of our decision-making with regard to our children centers around helping them fit in? Because there is a strong pull, as I mentioned yesterday on that panel, a strong pull for us to want to medicate some bad memory that we have of not fitting in by giving our children a freedom from that tension as often as possible and in as many ways ways as possible not only is there a desire for us to want the child not to feel that tension but we ourselves do not want to feel the tension of other parents looking at us and saying why don't you express your love for your child by doing X Y or Z according to the markers that are common to our culture we need to be asking what opportunities we can take to train our children to be comfortable with feeling different now don't panic Does being different mean, am I standing up here asking you to not allow your children to wear buttons anymore because they're vain? Am I saying we should all drive around in covered wagons? And I don't mean to malign the Amish, they're lovely people, I hear. No, no, we're not talking about intentionally making ourselves odd for the sake of drawing attention to the gospel. We're talking about following Christ in such a way that that occurs. Romans 16, 19 says, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to understand what evil is and to flee from it. But we are also to be present in the midst of it. Verse 16 of Matthew 10 says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. We are going to ask our children to trade being the same for being set apart. And that means that we're gonna think differently about the decisions that we make, and I wanna talk about five different key areas this morning that you can consider as you think through how you might raise an alien child. Activities, speech, possessions, entertainment, and friends. You'll probably be done by lunch, so don't worry about it, it'll be fine. Okay, so activities. The alien child is going to spend his or her time differently than the child of the unbeliever. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 says this. We've heard it several times at the conference. Let's just sit under it one more time and see what we can pull from it. It says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the author of Deuteronomy seems to think that there will actually be times Where we sit in our house, together, seems to think there will be times where we walk by the way, together, when we lie down, together, and when we rise up, together. This passage assumes a natural rhythm of the home that is bringing the family together versus spreading the family out. And I think that here we see a charge to evaluate with any scheduled decision, the cost versus benefit associated with it. So when my uh, oldest child started high school, my kids went to public school all the way through, stay with me homeschoolers, it's gonna be okay. They went all the way through, and when my freshman son started in high school, the high school counselor came out to talk to the parents, and he asked if we knew what the number one thing was that he saw children in the counseling office for uh, at our high school. It's a big public high school, and I promise you, every parent in the room thought that he was going to say drugs and alcohol. And do you know what he said? He said, depression and anxiety related to exhaustion and overscheduling. That that was the number one thing that he saw. So that means that as parents of Christian children, we or Christian parents of children who we are praying will become Christians at some point, we're going to make some hard decisions around how we're going to choose activities. We're going to do a, we're going to do some math that other people aren't doing. So I know how this works, right? Like you're, you have the two year old; he's he's basically just learned to walk, and you hear that everybody's signing up for a gymnastics class. And so, what do you do? You're like, oh my gosh, we got to do that. That's whatever he's doing. So you put him in the class. He's just learned to walk. So obviously a cartwheel is what is next. <laughs> you pay whatever they want. Little Jimmy spends a semester out there toddling around doing whatever. And at the end of the class, well, about a week or two before, the coach is going to come up to you. And what is the coach going to say? You know what, Mrs. Wilkin? Little Jimmy is showing real talent. I mean, I think there might be something here. I mean, he's, he's really getting it. It's really, he's coming along great. But you know what little Jimmy's going to need? private lessons, you know, you know. And what it, we're like, my little Jimmy, he's he's going to the Olympics. <laughs> I knew it. I knew. Like I knew. I knew when he started walking, I could see. I could see and then what do you do you start writing the checks and writing the checks and devoting the time to it right when we get sucked in why because we've heard exactly what we're hoping for and what we need to understand like when you were a kid were there as many activities to get involved in no my mom was like go play with sticks don't burn anything down <laughs> there are so many things that our children can get involved in do you know why cash money suburban influence Affluence, suburban affluence, people are making millions of dollars off of our desire to have a famous child. (laughs) And we walk into it willingly. So we need to be a little discerning about the choices that we are making with regard to this. So there are some questions that you can ask yourself. You can ask yourself, is this an activity or is our activity level something that is helping our family or hurting our family? And one of the things that I think parents miss out a lot on with this is they fail to recognize the collective effect of everybody's activities on the family as a whole. So we had four kids in four years. Can you imagine what my life would have been like if everybody was out there having three or four activities a week? We wouldn't never have been home. And that's kind of a key point, right? Because one of the things with activities that you have to keep an eye on is whether they're sabotaging the regular rhythms of the home to a point that we're not able to train our children as we ought to. Things like family dinner. Now, it's not that you might never miss a family dinner for an activity, but if family dinner is habitually missed or almost always missed, you're actually putting your kids into a risk category, people have told us. That families that sit down for family dinner at least four nights a week, their children are far less likely to get involved in drugs and alcohol and other risky behaviors. Four nights a week to have family together at home. Check that out for a second. You're thinking of ways that you want to be countercultural. Family dinner may be the most countercultural thing that you could do. So when we're looking at which activities we do, we have to weigh them by different measures than other's families might. Now, because we had four children so close in age, we had a rule, you could do one thing or you could do no things, one or none. Doesn't it sound fun to live at my house? (laughs) And a lot of times they would choose to do the one thing and then they might do nothing for a while. And I had one of the four kids who chose none every time, none, 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 none. And other parents are like, what's happening there? You know, are you going to, you going to push him toward anything? And we're like, I don't think so. And so what would happen was I began to see this pattern. He would, he would, we would be somewhere and an adult would come up to him and they'd say, hi, Calvin, what do you do? Uh, Calvin does not have a profession, (laughs) but this is what we do, right? Like you go, you, do you play baseball? And Calvin's like, nope. Do you, do you do gymnastics? And he's he's the fourth kid, right? So like, we're not looking for more things to pay for at the point he comes along. <laughs> he's like, I, I read books. He never he never took on one of these activities. And I think that we have bought into the idea that if your child isn't out there trying every single thing, maybe they won't turn into the fully formed person that they are supposed to be. But I have, a, I have at least a sample of one to tell you that that's not the case. He ended up teaching himself a guitar, You know, he discovered a love of music. He's still an avid reader. He's a great kid. He's not an NBA superstar. But when I watch the lives of those people, I wonder why we ask that for our children at all. Okay, so we said one or none. That was our rule. You probably don't have to be that conservative with it because you may have fewer children that's on you. You figure that out for yourself. But we have to be running these things through a different filter than other people. So, does it impinge on our ability to be together as a family? So, you know, that whole thing about what do you do, little Calvin? If you've noticed, oftentimes in our families, everybody has their own sort of um, activity identity. So, dad is a golfer, mom sells essential oils, for example. just guessing Jimmy and I'm good by the way but thanks Jimmy plays baseball, Susie does dance, right? And everybody has this identity that revolves around the activity that they're in. But what's happening is because we have these activities, we're moving this direction from each other instead of moving this direction from each other. And as your children grow older, you're gonna want them to sense that home is their primary place of belonging. You're going to want them to not feel like the soccer team is the place where they can share all of their deepest secrets. You want home to be that place. And so you're going to want them to be drawn there. Not You're not going to want there all the time, right? Amen. But you're going to want them to see the home as the place where they can come and be themselves. And you want it to be a place that you're spending a lot of time together. Activities are tough. So the other issue is, that when you have multiple children and multiple activities, you tend to think, well, this is just you know what Jimmy is involved in and this is just what Susie is involved in, but it's never that way, right? Like the things that we're involved in are always impacting everybody else who's in the family. And so we have to weigh sort of this combined cost because maybe Jimmy's practice is during dinner, but someone's got to take him there you know, or if Susie's on a travel team, we're going to divide and conquer and someone's going to go and be over here and the rest of us are going to be over here. And it's not that you don't do those things, but you're keeping a tab on what is the cost to the family as a whole. Why? Because the alien child doesn't get involved in activities the way that other children do. We talk about how quality time is something that we want with our children And a lot of times when we're extra busy, we tell ourselves, well, yeah, but I I have a lot of quality time with them, so it's good. But I think we all can acknowledge that the reality of quality time is that it is a function of quantity time. And so the more time we spend running apart from each other, the less chance that there is that we're going to have the stretches of time that are necessary for these times to bubble up where we have the important conversations. I could do a whole 45 minutes just on scheduling, but we're gonna keep moving. Second, speech. An alien child will not sound like other children. The alien child learns kind words. Uh, if you have spent any time in a schoolroom, you know that kind words are also a countercultural thing. Children grow up on a diet of snark and cynicism and sarcasm. Snark, sarcasm, and cynicism, the three S's of tough speech. I'm kidding, I know cynicism starts with a C. I'm pretty sure it does. They see it on TV. They hear it from their friends. So guess where the last place should be that it comes up? Should be at home, right? This was a tough one for me. You can tell I have a fully orbs sense of humor. I grew up in a home where sarcasm was our love language. I married a man who is kind and soft-spoken and in the early years of our marriage, it did not go well in that regard. And so the idea that we could raise children without those things was foreign to me. And he told me, he said, in our home, my mother made a rule that we were not allowed to tease each other. And I sat there and stared at him and I said, what did you talk about at the dinner table? (laughs) He grew up with a more beautiful vision for family in that sense. And so I had to learn not to employ the methods that were comfortable to me. You know why? Because as your kid gets older, the speech that is coming out of them toward you is usually the speech that you have directed at them for all of the years until they got bold enough to dish it back. So if my children were going to use sarcasm, if they were going to use mockery or teasing, it had better have come from their peer group and not from me. They're going to know how to use kind words and so we disarm sarcasm and teaching. Sarcasm is a form of verbal bullying. Sarcasm always has a victim. If you pay attention to the way that you use it, you will realize that someone else is always paying the bill for your humor when you employ it. So how terrible if we are to employ it in our relationships with our children who already are at a verbal disadvantage just by their developmental abilities. Sarcasm cannot be part of the vocabulary of the Christian home. Now there are plenty of other ways to be funny Um, You can use irony, you know, you can be self-deprecating. I can make fun of me all day long because I get the joke. But we have to be so careful, especially with children who are concrete and are learning and developing, that we use language that is accessible to them. So you train your children in kind words. And when other children are unkind to them, we sent our kids to school with this instruction. If someone is mean to you, look them in the eye and say, that's not kind and walk away. Because that goes over great in the locker room, right? But here's the thing. It's speaking the truth. It's keeping it from being personal. And it gives them a way to walk away from the situation without sitting with their own speech. They didn't always do it right. But we're not in the business of locking our children into always doing right things. We are trying to give them language. We're trying to give them a script so that over time they learn to employ it. Alien children use pure words. So when the swear words start coming home from school, what do you do? And I remember this so clearly. I remember Matt coming home from school and saying, Mom, I learned the S word today. And you're like, okay. Honey, what is the S word? What, I mean, I, I know it, but why don't you just tell me what it is. And what does he say? Stupid. Oh, okay, alrighty. Of course that's the S word. Comes home a few weeks later and says, Mom, I learned the SH word. And you're like, come on okay, well, I know the S-H word. And I'm thinking, I think I know the S-H word. What is the S-H word? And he says, shut up. Yeah, that's a bad one. Shut up is a bad word, honey. Um, But over time, of course, he begins to bring home the real words, the ones that you're like, man, I really didn't want you to know that yet. And we decided that we would diffuse swearing by taking away the forbiddenness of it a little bit, right? So what we did is we would say, hey, you know what? There's not a word you can bring home that I won't know. So you bring it home and we'll trot it out and I'll tell you whether I knew it or not. And then we're going to, we would talk about what it meant and why people use it the way that they do. And we would say it out loud a few times and we'd laugh about it. And it totally took all of the bite out of it. It took all the mystery out of it. And it began doing something really important. It began setting up Jeff and me as the source of all knowledge, right? Because honestly, kids think we don't know anything. They think that what gets talked about at the lunch table is like this sacred space that their parents have no idea about. And you need to set yourself up as the expert on all things. And so I remember telling uh, Matt, if you there, you, have, you have brought me many terrible words, but you have not brought me the mother of all swear words. And he's like, what's the mother of all swear words? And I said, well, I will, I will tell you when you bring it home. <laughs> he rose to the challenge. He brought me some words that were scorchers. I mean, I'm like, Yep, I know that one too, and that's not it. And uh, he got all the way to his sophomore year of high school before he finally uh, brought it home. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So we diffuse the sort of the lure around those kinds of words by just taking their power away by having the conversation around them. And we point them instead toward fruit of the spirit speech, right? Speech that is loving, that is joyful, that is patient, that is kind. All of those things are the kinds of speech we try to cultivate in our children. And we teach them reconciling words. We teach them how to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you. And there's been a lot of discussion around that. Like, is it okay to train a child in that language when they don't yet? feel remorse. Anybody seen this one? You know, I'm sorry. No, you're really not. <laughs> yes, absolutely train them in the language of reconciliation, in the hope that the right motive will attach itself at the right time. You train them to say please and thank you before they're pleased or thankful. You train them to say ma'am or sir. You're giving them tools to be able to be good citizens and ultimately we pray good Christians. So give them words of reconciliation. Give them words of prayer. Model prayer for them in the home. Let them be children who, when they go into a hostile environment, know that even if they don't have the right words to say back to someone who is being unkind, they can direct their words heavenward. Next, number three, possessions. The alien child will not own what other children own. Or more precisely, the alien child will not own what other children own when they own it. Um, In our homes, we should be cultivating a sense of delayed gratification. Why? Because we are a people of delayed gratification. We await something better. This, to me, is probably the most potentially devastating element of what technology seems to be doing to our children's brains. They are losing their capacity to wait, and God help us as parents, we are often handing them the means to do it. When we raise children who do not know how to wait. We stand a very little chance of being able to help them become disciples who know how to wait for the Lord, who know how to be patient with others in their suffering or in their sin. This is a basic skill of being a Christ follower. And so we should look for ways to teach delayed gratification. I will tell you straight up, when I heard that Amazon was developing drones so that they could just drop my package on the front porch as soon as I thought I wanted something, I was like, I am in. And can we get the Girl Scouts hooked up with that? (laughs) Because I want those cookies and I want them yesterday. And you think about that, and a big piece of this is obviously modeling. Like one of the things I had to tell myself as a young mom, because I had to take all four kids to the store with me, which meant I could only buy like two things by the time everything was in the cart, the way that it was supposed to be. And one of my favorite things was how people would stop me and say, are they all yours? And it was all I could do to not say, who picks up extra toddlers to go to this? (laughs) Of course they're all mine. Don't you think if I had any other option, I'm like, hey kids, let's go to the store. Let's bring some friends along. <laughs> so sometimes my time in Target was a little frantic, right? You're just like randomly grabbing things as fast as you can like get me out of here before something explodes, right? And, and what I began to realize was that I needed to stop. I needed to pick things up and look at them. And you know what I needed to do? Put them back. My children needed a visual way to learn that just because I might want it doesn't mean that I get it right then. So we thought about ways that we could show them, hey, we want this and in many cases we have the money for it. It's not a no, it's a not now. And that's a good concept for our children to understand. So that means that we will raise children who view possessions in a different light. They will value last year's possession and not always want this year's. They will understand the difference between more and less and enough. Enough is a concept that we are losing in our culture as well. We have parents who, uh, because of guilt of not being around the kids enough or whatever it is, they begin to sort of purchase their approval by giving them whatever they want, whenever they want it. Why? Because we think that we're going to satisfy the child. But studies show that when you give a child what they want exactly when they want it, that you don't create a child who is satisfied. You create a child who is insatiable, who is never satisfied. So we talk to our children about needs versus wants. And here's the thing, I'm not saying that you never give your child the nice thing. Like, you know how they'll come and they'll be like, I just really want this. And you're like, that is the dumbest thing in your head. You're like, that is such a dumb thing to want, but they really want it. Like it's a pair of tennis shoes that costs 450 bucks. And you're like, okay, at Target, I can buy you tennis shoes for $32. And so what do you do? You meet them halfway because they're gonna learn a great lesson if they shell out the difference between what you're willing to pay and what the item costs. They will either gain enjoyment from the item that is equivalent to what they paid for it and they will learn a lesson about how to spend money that way or they will wear the brand new tennis shoes that are white in a giant mud puddle and realize that probably they weren't the best use of their money but they get to learn something about stewardship themselves. So you can partner with them and have them take some responsibility over their possessions by asking them to contribute once they have money in their little bank accounts. Um, another thing for us that was kind of critical is we we delayed cell phone usage as long as we possibly could. And, and I know it's not as easy to do that as it was when my kids were coming up. But we uh, allowed them to have a cell phone in the eighth grade. We bought them one of those Go phones and they had to pay for it. It was awesome. So they would get sucked into someone's group text and they're getting charged 15 cents every time some kid sends a text and they were dying. They were horrified. And what it did is it taught them to use the phone for needful communication only because PS, that's what phones are for. And then later when they hit high school, we did give them a smartphone before they left for college. You know why? Because I don't want you going to college and getting a smartphone for the first time when you're not living under my roof. So we gave them opportunities as they were appropriate. My kids would say, well, I need a phone. How am I gonna call you if I'm in trouble? And I'm like, every single one of your friends has a phone. I am not worried that you can reach me if you need to. And another thing that i saw a lot of that i was even aware of in myself was that once my child had a phone i was more likely to say yes to a situation i was not that comfortable with under the assumption well they can just call me if anything goes wrong so the phone can give us a false sense of security so we weigh possessions differently than other people do We may say yes, we may say no, we may say not now, we may ask them to partner when they're able in the the expense, but we don't always have to have the newest thing and we don't have to have a ton of it. Then we talk about giving as well. Fourth, an alien child will not watch, read or listen to what other children watch, read or listen to. An alien child will view entertainment differently. So music, movies, internet, books, TV. And if you're waiting for me to give you a list of what your kid can watch and can't watch, you are gonna be sorely disappointed because I am not a fool. And it's your job. It's your job to discern what it is that your children should be watching, and more importantly, how much they should be watching. But here's the thing that I need you to understand. Anytime we sit down with entertainment, we're making a choice between doing that and doing something else. So um, I would say what other speakers have said, that long car trips were a time when most of our best conversations happened. We have an 11 hour ride out to my parents' house in Santa Fe. And so I would tell the children, um, you can have a movie in the morning and a movie in the afternoon on this trip. And so they're like, okay, that's cool. Everybody else is basically watching shows the whole trip when they go somewhere, but whatever. And then they would choose the sound of music because it's three and a half hours long. But we need to understand that when you're, that's an example of when you're all in the same place together, that is an opportunity to train or just to have a conversation. And oftentimes we are trading training for entertaining. So if you're waiting for a table at a restaurant and you hand your child the phone, instead of sitting there and seeing if a conversation bubbles up, you have just chosen entertaining over training doesn't mean that you never do that, right? Like you might do it sometimes, but if that's what characterizes you is to medicate waiting with entertaining versus training, you might end up raising a child who anytime they're faced with waiting, finds a way to medicate it, and the medications get scarier the older we get. So training versus entertaining. Long car trips are not a time for everyone to just zone out in their own little entertainment world part of the time they are for sure, right? Like when everybody's totally freaking out. But if you think I can't survive a long car trip unless my kids are plugged in somewhere, I'd ask you to reevaluate that you are trading a precious time when you do that. So training versus entertaining. Another thing that I've noticed in our society is that entertaining is no longer a shared value. So in other words, we go on a car trip and Jimmy's got his music on his phone and Susie's got her music on her phone or her screen in front of her and mom's listening to something and dad's listening to something else. And even when we're at home, a lot of times this is what happens, right? Like someone's in one room watching something, someone's in another room watching something. Entertainment is ceasing to be a shared value. It is seen as an individual thing that we do. But what if we didn't do that? Like, what if we all sat down together? What if when you were in the car, you all listened to the same music? What if when you watched the movie, everybody watched the same movie and you reinforce that idea that we are walking by the way together, that this is something that we are doing together. And it wasn't just about enjoying the entertainment. It was about enjoying our enjoyment of the entertainment together. We live in houses that are designed to push us apart many times. Everybody has their own room, everybody has their own TV, everybody has their own everything. And one of the great gifts of having all of these kids that came at the same time was that we couldn't move to a house big enough, fast enough, and we were all on top of each other. And it was a gift from the Lord. It was a gift from the Lord. Now, my son did go off to college and have to tell his friends who Casey and the Sunshine Band was because none of them had ever heard of it. We were like, sorry, not sorry because we all shared the same musical tastes. It was a great way for us to build an identity as a family. Fifth, friends. An alien child will not invest in the same kinds of relationships that other children do. We train our children to recognize character. We train them to flee from drama and disorder. And the best way to train your child to flee from drama and disorder in relationships is to not have them in your home. So we had a rule that no one gets to press the drama button in our house. I got two girls, I got two boys, and I would love to tell you that the girls were where the drama came from, but that is actually not true. It does not seem to be a gender specific thing. Boy drama looks more like WWE. Girl drama looks more like waving a hairbrush at somebody across the bathroom. It's the same motive, right? And so we said, no one gets to push the drama button. You can come tell me what's wrong, but you cannot flip out. If you flip out, you can come back when you're done flipping out and then we will talk about it. No one gets to push the drama button. And so then you send children into their schoolroom relationships and they begin to realize that a lot of people don't have that rule. And they gravitate toward the children who have more self-control around their emotions. They begin to recognize character and to flee from drama and disorder. This is a really important piece work to make the home their primary place of belonging and how is the best way to accomplish this we ask our children to be friends with one another siblings can be friends this is such an important thing to me sibling rivalry is accepted by us as the way that the home should function and i'm telling you that you may not be able to neutralize it but you must not normalize it you know why because we are part of the family of God, where we are to view ourselves as brothers and sisters partnering in kingdom work. There are 54 one another's in the New Testament that we cannot hope to fulfill if we have adversarial relationships with one another. Is it any wonder that there is fractiousness among the brothers and sisters in the church when so many of our homes have said that fractiousness between brothers and sisters is all we can hope for. So my husband was best friends with his sister. Uh, Her senior year, he attended a dance as her date. They have pictures of them in high school holding hands at Disney World, in high school. (laughs) It's okay to say it makes you uncomfortable. my brothers locked me in the closet. So I had no frame of reference for this and if I hadn't seen it in Jeff's family, I couldn't have hoped for it. But I'm here to tell you, it's a thing and it's the best thing. So when our kids were fighting with one another, you know what we did? We said, guess who's not going over to anybody else's house? you guys, because until you can get along with each other, you don't need to go anywhere else because these are your best friends. And I know they were thinking in their heads, that is not my best friend. I would murder this person if you left the room right now. But we said it again and again, this is your best friend. This is your best friend. This is your best friend. You know why Jeff had the funniest conversation with the kids one night and he was like, Hey, do you know who my best friend was in third grade? And they're like, no. And he goes, neither do I I got no idea where that guy is. And neither will you. You know who you're always gonna be with? These people. These four people in this room, the four of you are going to take care, Lord willing, of mom and dad as we age. You will have these people forever for the whole length of your life on, on this earth. Don't you want them to be your best friends? And they are each other's best friends. Like I can't even believe it worked. I'm so faithless. The three that are down at Texas A&M, where's Mm Philip? The three that are down there, go to family dinner together and, and FaceTime in the one who's still at home and sit there and just laugh their heads off. It is the sweetest thing and I did not think it is possible so I'm standing here to repent and tell you that it is and expect it and work toward it with faithfulness. So what's the bottom line? You probably see this coming. The only reliable way to raise an alien child Is to be an alien parent you yourself must strive to know love and serve God with everything that you have more important than right relationship with your child is right relationship with your Heavenly Father it is your only hope of right relationship with your child because think about this before your child ever learns to read a Bible they will read you any parent Can point a child toward conformity and comfort. You point them toward Christ. Christ, who was himself the most alien and strange of all. When I was a young mom, I was talking to another mom who was a little further along from me about um, a situation I had with my son. I didn't want him to uh, see this movie that was being shown at a birthday party that he was going to, but I was really embarrassed to talk to the other mom about it. And so I was asking her, do you think I should just send him? I should just let him go. Her name was Eileen Mulcahy. Eileen had four children who were just a little bit older than mine and she listened to me very patiently and I think she must've concealed what she was really thinking until I was done. And then she said, you know, Jen, I believe that I will stand before God and give an account for the way I raised these children. So I don't care what that mother thinks. And I've carried that with me. My reference point is different. The alien family is not concerned with fearing what other parents think. They are concerned with the fear of the Lord. Alien parents trade the fear of man for the life-giving fear of the Lord because life is too short to spend fearing the wrong things in the wrong ways. As Christian parents, the most hopeful thing we can do is lift up our own eyes and train the eyes of our children to behold our savior, alien and strange. He is coming on the clouds and when he comes, may he find the family of God and your family and my family desperately hoping and yearning to look like him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of children. We feel so overwhelmed by it. We know that we ourselves are not as alien as we should be. And we pray, Lord, that you would first do the work in us that we might go and make disciples of our children as you would have us to do. Thank you, Father, for your grace on the days when we do not do it well. And thank you for your great mercy in giving us better than we deserve in our children and in the outcomes of these difficult days that we walk through as parents. We ask, Father, that we would trust them to you, that our fear of the Lord would help us to turn over to you these little aliens, that we all might grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we ask these things in the name of your son. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast. Visit us at ERLC.com or be sure to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or Google Podcast. Tune in next week as we hear from VeggieTales creator, Phil Vischer.